Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Jewish Studies. This is your host, Bernice Heilbrunn, and we have the pleasure today of speaking with Rabbi Dr. Daniel M. Horwitz about his book just released in April 2016 called A Kabbalah and Jewish Mysticism Reader, Demystifying Jewish Mysticism. The book is an annotated anthology of Jewish mystical works, concepts, and experiences. It's been hailed by scholars and critics as a gateway into the world of Jewish spirituality, an imported resource, very well done, very solid, carefully thought out, well-researched, making a very complicated subject quite accessible. That's certainly been my experience in reading it, and now I'd like to welcome Dr. Horwitz so that you can hear about it in his own words. Welcome, Rabbi Dr. Danny Horwitz, to New Books and Jewish Studies. Thank you, Bernice. My pleasure. Great. Uh, would you please say a few words to introduce yourself to our listeners and also to uh, tell them briefly about your book? Sure. I had an unusual Jewish background. I, I grew up in Oklahoma. I was born in Oklahoma City and grew up in a conservative synagogue there, grew up in a family that was not at all uh, traditionally observant, uh, but uh, very strongly identifying uh, as Jewish and as Zionist and so forth. And so um, uh, over the years, uh, partly through my youth group experiences and partly uh, from personal experiences, uh, I became more committed and during my college years uh, decided to become a rabbi. Uh, we also had a tradition in our family uh, that on, on my father's side, we were descended from a very famous mystic, uh, Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz, uh, who died in 1630, uh, who was the author of one of the, the great collections of Jewish thought. Uh, it was an encyclopedic work uh, called Shnei Luchot Habrit, The Two Tablets of the Covenant. And uh, it was everything Jewish up to that, up to about 1625, but uh, seen through a Kabbalistic lens. And I only knew that we were descended from this rabbi, but I was, you know, never, certainly at that time, none of it had been published in English, and uh, no one ever showed me a copy of the book. No one ever taught me anything about it, even through my uh, rabbinical school years. Um, and it was only during the time I was in rabbinical school that I actually found out a little bit about uh, him and uh, our family connection to him. Um, after many years uh, in the congregational rabbinate, uh, I began a doctoral program at Spurtis Institute in Chicago, uh, studying with, uh, under the direction of Dr. Uh, Byron Sherwin, who unfortunately passed away last year. And Dr. Sherwin was uh, a disciple, really one of the last disciples, of Abraham Joshua Heschel, who taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary for many years, and who, as I mentioned in my book, was one of the uh, most important uh, figures in Jewish mysticism in the 20th century. So the doctoral program uh, had a very significant component uh, in Jewish mysticism, and I had never studied anything in Jewish mysticism, uh, not even in rabbinical school, uh, not even a class in Hasidism or Hasidic text. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I said, I, I guess I'm going to need to get up to speed. And so that, that, was the, uh, that was the beginning of what many, many years later 
became the, uh, the genesis of this book. Uh, one component of the doctoral program was a reading course in Jewish mysticism, and uh, Dr. Sherwin uh, had all sorts of clever and sometimes very practical assignments. Uh, and one of them, uh, one of the uh, optional uh, assignments for this course was to construct a curriculum in Jewish mysticism. And so I said, you know, that's very practical for me because at the time I was living in Kansas City, I was teaching in, in the uh, Melton Adult Mini School there, and I decided, well, this would be a course that I could uh, develop an outline and then put to use uh, for uh, people who had already completed the core curriculum of Melton. And that's what I did. I really dashed it off uh, in, in a matter of days. You know, other assignments in that reading course were more <laughs> difficult and complicated. But it was just, you know, the bare bones of a curriculum. It wasn't intended to be uh, anything... Uh, uh, quite so thorough. And a few years later, uh, it came time for me to choose a project uh, for the completion of the doctoral program. And uh, after some thoughts back and forth and other possibilities discarded, uh, I hit on the idea of just expanding what I had already done and what I had actually taught in Kansas City, uh, and making the project a curriculum in Jewish mysticism. Uh, so I did, and that was completed, and I received the degree in 2013. Well, after that, I thought, well, you know, I should shop this project around. Somebody's got to want a curriculum in Jewish mysticism. And I... I developed it as a Melton course. I wanted to sell it to Melton. That was my, my first choice. Uh, and Melton decided that they wanted something shorter. This was a definitely a year-long course, at least. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, they declined to uh, take me up on it. And so I started to shop it around the publishers. And Jewish Publications Society was the second uh, publisher I contacted. And so it was very fortuitous because at the time they were just beginning a series of anthologies of Jewish thought. Right. So uh, I literally fell into Jewish Publication Society and uh, after a, a lot of revisions and many suggestions uh, uh, that we worked on together, uh, here, here it is. Terrific. Very interesting. And uh, our listeners who are in graduate school or otherwise pursuing uh, studies might uh, take some uh, um, confidence from uh, hearing how you did this. You just right? never know what, what kind of good fortune might come your Right, life. exactly. Serendipity uh, and a lot of hard work. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of terms that uh, maybe you can help our listeners understand. Uh, let's start with Melton. Could you just briefly tell us all what Melton is? Um, Melton is an adult uh, Jewish education course, uh, typically run through Jewish community centers, sometimes through uh, other institutions in a community. Here in Houston, it's run through the Jewish community center. Uh, as a, an adult learning program, Melton has a two-year core curriculum, classes on uh, purposes, ethics, uh, rhythms of Jewish life, uh, dilemmas in Jewish life, different challenges that we face. Um, and typically, most people begin by taking the two-year core curriculum, and then uh, they go on to what we refer to as graduate uh -huh. courses. Uh, they're not graduate courses like doctoral courses or master's courses, but they, you know, it certainly helps to have the core curriculum beforehand. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I've now been teaching uh, in the Milton program. This is my 17th year. Wow. Uh, Quite an accomplishment. A, and it's a, it's a very part-time task, but it's very rewarding and uh, a great way to meet many people who are you know, serious uh, Jewish learners, mm -hmm. uh, 
and uh, who want to explore some of the issues that, that I explored in classes on mysticism. Great, thank you. And another term that you uh, mentioned that I think uh, this would be a good time to go into is Kabbalah. Um, so, of course, there's a good part of your book that is uh, devoted to Kabbalah. Let's explain that, if you might, please, for our listeners. What is Kabbalah? And uh, perhaps you could tell us something about it. Sure. The, f- the meaning of the word Kabbalah means uh, received. It refers to received tradition because that is what it claims to be. Uh, the mystical tradition uh, is much older than Kabbalah. Uh, some scholars refer to previous incarnations of mystical thought as proto-Kabbalah. Uh, but Kabbalah really didn't begin until the 12th century, and uh, it essentially uh, provides a way to maintain a certain distance for God from human beings, while at the same time providing an avenue for a more intimate relationship with God. Uh, Kabbalah, uh, at least in the mainstream form of Kabbalah, which I I refer to in the book as mainline Kabbalah, uh, is... uh, it, it stipulates that there is uh, the infinite God, who is the Ein Sof, who is essentially unknowable uh, and uh, totally, totally separate from human beings. And there is there is also um, a development from the Ein Sof. Uh, through ten different stages, which are referred to in the tradition as sfirot, as different emanations of Mm -hmm. God. And through those ten emanations, um, God reveals himself and makes himself accessible to human beings. Uh, Through the ten sfirot, human beings uh, are able to uh, not only to have some kind of relationship with God, but also to know something of the inner life of God, and also to be able to help God achieve God's purposes for the universe. That sounds incredibly um, personal in terms of how you're referencing God, <coughs> personal in terms of uh, anthropomorphic to talk about his inner life. Do you want to comment on that? It is. I mean, to, to imagine that we can have some kind of knowledge or even power within God's inner life, uh, to say the least, that's very ambitious, isn't it? Um, that, however, is one of the positive features of Jewish mysticism, in that it, instead of saying that, you know, we're distant and we're just, you know, kind of, pawns in the universe, and, and we really can't relate to God, uh, it gives human beings a critically important purpose. Mm-hmm. And an opportunity um, uh, to, uh, to really make God part of their daily existence, daily life. Right. Now, now, classically, Judaism has always involved God in daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, practical acts, which you know, through the fulfillment of the commandments, uh, Jews attempt to strengthen their relationship with God, mm-hmm. uh, build on their relationship with God, understand better what God wants of them. But most of that is of fairly low intensity. Mm-hmm. Right? If I say a blessing before I eat a piece of food, How long does it take me to recite the blessing? Even assuming that I do it mindfully, Mm -hmm. it's really only a matter of a few seconds. Mm -hmm. It's not as if I go into a uh, paranormal state of some kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I do it. And I refer to this kind of practice in in my book as normal mysticism. It's not an original term. It's a, a term that was coined 
uh, originally by Professor Max Kedushin, 20th century teacher at the Jewish Theological Seminary, that uh, normal mysticism is all the things that we normally do in Jewish life to have uh, a normal, non-intense relationship with God. Thank you. Um, and that's, as you've suggested, part of, uh, of your book, and much of the rest of your book deals with different aspects of Jewish mysticism. Right, because the more intense things are more interesting and, and have also had their role in the development of Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think in, in most religious life, it has always been the people who sought more intensity who created new developments, uh, new rituals, uh, new means of uh, communicating with and making oneself understood to the infinite. You want to give us an example? I'll give an example uh, of something that built on Jewish practice. Um, the Sabbath is a you know one of the most important themes in Judaism uh, and in Jewish ritual, um, and it was always a time that was set aside for holy purposes. After all, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So, uh, in in the time of the Talmud, uh, it mentions that there were rabbis who would go out into the fields to greet the Sabbath, uh, and there were rabbis who would refer to the Sabbath as a queen, uh, treat her as, as royalty. And it was always a day that involved special preparation and uh, a certain degree of longing for a special time for communion with God and for Jewish learning, uh, as well as for all the normal things that are benefits of the Sabbath time with your family, time with the community, etc. In the 16th century, there was a great flowering of Jewish mysticism, particularly in uh, the Galilean city of Tzfat. Uh, and in Tzfat, um, a whole service was added onto the Friday night service uh, to deepen uh, this connection uh, as the entryway to the Shabbat. It's called Kabbalat Shabbat, literally the receiving of Shabbat, Sabbath. And that service has stuck as and become an extremely important part of Jewish life and observance. Um, what's more, the centerpiece of Kabbalat Shabbat is a hymn uh, entitled L'Chadodi, uh, which is a very deeply Kabbalistic meditation and poem, and um, I, I devote uh, a certain amount of space to it in the book, although uh, Really, uh, Rufin Kimmelman of Brandeis has written an entire book just on the Kabbalistic significance of this song, L'cha Dodi, Come My Beloved. How wonderful. And today, of course, being Friday, there will be a Kabbalat Shabbat service. There will be Kabbalat Shabbat everywhere. Everywhere, right. right. I know. Just to give the, our, re, uh, our listeners some sense of how this actually became an integral part of Jewish observance and is, to this day, a very meaningful Right, and 500 years ago, there, there was no such thing as a Kabbalat Shabbat service. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, traditional Jews uh, couldn't think of having Shabbat without it. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, that's a great example. Um, let's, let's go back, if you will, perhaps to the beginning in Jewish mysticism. Is, the, is it, uh, uh, again, you could probably write a whole book on what is Jewish mysticism, but I wonder if we want to define that for our listeners before we go on to discuss it. Sure, it's an interesting question because in uh, in the Bible there is no word for mysticism. It's it's like sort of the ground on which everything rests. The idea that human beings 
have this connection with God, and that at times they they do connect intimately with God. And that's, that, to me, is what Jewish mysticism means. It is the effort by Jewish people to develop, maintain, strengthen an intimate connection mm-hmm. with God. Uh, there are you know, many other definitions of mysticism in general, but I think that's, that's sufficient for most purposes. That's great. Thank you. And that, let me tie in with what you said when you introduced yourself. Uh, you went through rabbinical school and you never really studied Jewish mysticism. Why, since it's so integral, perhaps, to uh, Jewish, uh, um, to Judaism, uh, can one go through uh, serious, significant learning and yet never learn anything about it? Well, I think that has changed somewhat in the past uh, 20 or 30 years, but that's since I was in rabbinical <laughs> school. Uh, Time flies. <laughs> yes. And uh, it, it just wasn't part of the curriculum at the time. And the reason for that, I think, is very simple. And I deal with that in the closing chapter of the book. That um, in the 19th and 20th century, uh, educated Jews very often uh, wanted to set themselves apart from um, certain mystical movements, in particular Hasidism, uh, which uh, many of them saw as uh, riddled with superstition and with uh, beliefs in magic, uh, and with things that were, frankly, an embarrassment for them. Uh, And they felt they were obstacles to their... uh, participation in uh, the broader life of Western Europe. And so, uh, most Jewish thinkers outside of Eastern Europe uh, dissociated themselves from anything to do with Jewish mysticism. And so, uh, if you look at the, um, the history of the Jewish Theological Seminary, where uh, where Heschel taught for many years, um, mysticism was a sideline there. I mean, there there were classes, there were uh, you know individuals such mm-hmm. as Heschel, but they were marginal to the uh, mission of the institution, which they understood to be to train. Uh, rabbis and leaders for the broader Jewish community, and they didn't see mysticism as having anything to do with that. Uh, Heschel personally was sidelined at the uh, uh, seminary, and there were some personal issues for some of the faculty uh, about that as well. Um, So we... um, we are still recovering uh, from that kind of prejudice against the mystical tradition. Uh, It's certainly true uh, that uh, there were things to criticize and there are are things that were part of the mystical tradition that uh, are not going to work in the 21st century or beyond. But that doesn't mean that we throw out the entire enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's so intriguing to hear you explain this because it reminds me that whenever you look at something within Jewish studies, you have to think of the larger context in which Jews lived, right? Because there's um, not always, perhaps, but sometimes a reflection. And so when you reminded us that uh, it was perhaps an embarrassment at the beginning of the 19th century and therefore side-railed, that's because this was a time of reason, or right, or an environment of reason, right? And the reason, and the reason, the uh, the conditions that today, um, would you say the conditions today are um, um, nurture a return to the Jewish? Uh, the Jewish traditions of mysticism. I guess what I'm trying to say is mysticism is a part of a very long tradition in Judaism. It's not that it's being created anew, but it's perhaps the conditions in our current environment 
uh, nurture, uh, delving into uh, um, what what we have. And, and, and I'm not sure that it's just the conditions of the environment. I would say that Jewish mysticism is uh, a critical part of Judaism itself. And if the pendulum swung in one direction, it was inevitable that it would swing back. Um, it is true that there are conditions in Jewish history where Jewish mysticism may flourish more than it did than in other periods. Uh, and so 19th and 20th century Judaism, there were other needs that uh, were more pressing. Right? Um, if your goal is to have intimacy with God, uh, it's a great goal, but there's a time and a place for that. And the 19th and 20th centuries were mainly about the crisis of Jewish existence and the need to, uh, number one, make Jews safe, and number two, uh, make uh, a Judaism that was uh, more palatable for the modern world. Uh, unfortunately, some people saw mysticism as one of those things that was incompatible with the modern world. And I'll tell you one story that I mentioned in the book, which I think is a great illustration of this. Um, Professor Saul Lieberman, who taught at the uh, Jewish Theological Seminary for many years and was one of the great, if not the greatest, Talmudist uh, during his lifetime, mm -hmm. uh, once uh, introduced Professor Gershom Scholem for a talk at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Scholem, of course, was the preeminent scholar of Jewish mysticism, the individual who really put it on the map as a field of scholarship. And Lieberman introduced him in the following way. He said to the students, I'll, I'll omit his uh, accent, uh, <laughs> he said, you know what I think of mysticism. Mysticism is nonsense. But the history of nonsense, that is scholarship. And so I introduce to you the world's greatest living scholar. That, was, that, that encapsulated the attitude of uh, many very learned Jews, Western Jews, uh, towards uh, Hasidism, towards mysticism in any of its forms, uh, and certainly Jewish mysticism. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. Now, you've, uh, we've, we've been talking about mysticism, and you mentioned uh, at the outset... Um, Hasidism. So I'd like to bring those together, if we might, and talk about uh, the relationship of Hasidism to mysticism. Our listeners may be familiar a little bit with Hasidism from Chabad, which is uh, perhaps out there in the community. Um, Chabad being one form of Hasidism, so right. that might be one they know. But if you could uh, tell us how Hasidism and mysticism relate to each other, and um, uh, then perhaps also the connection of Hasidism with ritual observance, which in my mind often seems to be uh, at the other end of the spectrum from rit ritual observance. That is, uh, those people who focus on ritual observance, um, are they truly mystics? And yet in your book, as I recall, uh, you make a very clear connection uh, or you, you share with us the connections that Hasidism makes with uh, ritual observance at the same time that it has a, a great tradition of mysticism. So let me begin uh, just to describe how Hasidism began in the 18th century. Hasidism uh, is one of the last great mystical movements in Jewish history. Uh, I say one of the last. It is, it's really the most recent. There are things that perhaps are beginning today which may be considered a bit of an offshoot of uh, Hasidic life. But Hasidic life began uh, as uh, a new mystical movement, as a way to bring 
mysticism, maybe in a somewhat diluted form, to the masses of Eastern European Jewry. Uh, there has always been a tension in Judaism about whether mysticism should be shared with anyone beyond a certain elite. Right? There's, there's great concern that you know, some things about mysticism really can be very damaging and easily misunderstood and that you shouldn't be involved with it until you've absorbed the meat and potatoes of Judaism, which is to say practically everything else in the Jewish tradition, mm -hmm. that Bible, Mishnah, Talmud, etc., etc., uh, and also until you've reached a certain level of maturity. Uh, you should be married, you should have children, you should have a life that roots you in this world so that when you uh, become more involved in mystical activity, uh, you'll still come back to this world and not be uh, carried away from it, so to speak. So, uh, there were many, many Kabbalists in Eastern European Jewry up to the 18th century and beyond, but most of them uh, did not believe in sharing a great deal of it with uh, you know, most Jews. Uh, unless you were part of the elite, the most learned, you were not likely to get any more than just, you know, the bare bones uh, of whatever kinds of Kabbalistic talk might have been part of the culture. Along comes uh, uh, Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov. Uh, a Baal Shem uh, was someone who wrote amulets. Mm -hmm. And he was the Baal Shem Tov. Tov means good. He apparently wrote very effective amulets. Okay? This is one of those things that made uh, Western European Jews very uncomfortable. And, and, but it certainly was a part of Jewish life, not only among mystics, but frankly for almost everyone in Jewish life before uh, the uh, 19th century. Amulets as in warding off evil? And warding off like. evil, uh, curing illness, uh, maybe an effective amulet for finding a good match uh -huh. for your child. Okay. Encouraging and, childbirth. And, uh, and, uh, yes, and, 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 you know, at the right time. Mm -hmm. So, yes, amulets uh, were a very important part of Jewish life. In fact, in the time of the Talmud, it's very well known that... Uh, uh, many of the sages and some of their wives even were uh, you know, very learned in that direction uh, and were uh, widely believed to have that, that capacity to be a good Baal Shem, although the term doesn't come uh, into uh, use until much later. And so the Baal Shem Tov um, created a Judaism that it, it, it simply it built on all the existing pieces of Judaism, certainly including Torah learning, certainly including uh, prayer and ritual, Shabbat observance, uh, but just intensifying it tremendously and uh, adding much more of the element of joy, which in many times and places was was considered a little bit reckless. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the average person, who wasn't necessarily a great scholar, felt that this was a way for them to connect with God. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of Hasidism. Uh, after the death of the Baal Shem Tov in 1760, uh, he was succeeded by Rabbi Dov Bear, the Maggid of Mezrich, uh, who began to create it as a, as a movement, sending out uh, other disciples to develop Hasidic uh, circles in uh, many, many different communities through Eastern Europe. Uh, 
on. So it begins as a movement uh, and um, it flourished until the, uh, until the Nazis destroyed the culture of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. Uh, the survivors, of course, brought Hasidism uh, into both the United States and to Israel, and they have been busily rebuilding. Uh, and so there are, uh, as mentioned, Chabad is just one of many different uh, Hasidic uh, groups and dynasties and sects. Uh, there are probably about 35, 40 different Hasidic groups. And Chabad is, you know, prominently visible uh, because they are uh, the one group that is most committed to outreach to other Jews. Uh, other Hasidic groups tend to be much more insulated. Uh, Chabad has its, you know, insulated core uh, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn and in Kfar Chabad in Israel. Uh, uh, and the, uh, the core tends to be uh, much more insular. But it is a key part of their mission to reach out to other Jews and to share the teachings of uh, their rabbis and their writings uh, and the wisdom of Hasidism as they understand it. Mm -hmm. Whereas every Hasidic group claims to be the authentic Hasidism. Mm -hmm. uh, and they all have certain things in common. Uh, and I, I devote four chapters to uh, Hasidism in the book uh, because that's uh, uh, that's obviously a key development in uh, mystical life uh, of Judaism over the past several hundred years. Mm -hmm. And could you share with us that that's that's very helpful. Could you share with us the connection between mysticism and ritual observance? Because I think uh, perhaps some listeners share with me my thought that the uh, the best the Baal Shem Tov mm -hmm. was. Um, uh, shifting toward mysticism as a uh, reaction, perhaps against intense study of the uh, Talmudic Judaism, to make it more to make uh, the mystical experience more accessible to the common person. And yet, I understand from your book that, uh, in fact, it doesn't uh, mysticism doesn't negate ritual observance, but rather uh, builds on it. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, it does not negate ritual observance. Um, most Hasidic groups uh, today certainly do not negate the value of Torah learning. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov simply shifted the balance a little bit uh, uh, so that uh, not only the most learned people would be prized, but every Jew's service was beloved to God. So uh, ritual observance... Uh, was always a key part of Hasidism, as it has classically been in just about every Jewish mystical movement. Uh, typically, uh, the mystics uh, did not change Judaism, Jewish practice, let's say. They, um, they simply built upon it. They added new new ideas. They added new interpretations. And maybe new joy? And, and you know, a okay. little bit of, and, and sometimes, especially <laughs> in Hasidism, mm -hmm. a new level of enthusiasm yes, uh, for, uh, for what was already being done. Most, uh, you know, the mystics are, are, are vulnerable to criticism because, you know, once you claim to have some kind of direct tie to God. Uh, if, if you're in a relationship with God such that you might be getting you know, prophetic wisdom, mm -hmm. right? uh, a direct line, you know, so then at that point, why do I need the Torah? Why do I need the classical teachings of our tradition? I can just plug into that relationship and bam, mm -hmm. I get what I'm supposed to do directly from the source. Mm -hmm. uh, so that made the mystics vulnerable to criticism because you're, you're, you're liable to cut us off from our roots. And especially if you're in a 
a part of Judaism that is not uh, enthusiastic about sharing mysticism with the entire group, then you know you could weaken Jewish practice, and and so the mystics tended to be ultra conservative, and as you know to compensate for that, they tended to be ultra traditional in the way that they um, went about their Jewish lives. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, I'd, I thank you. I would like to turn to exaltation because I found that very intriguing to um, to read about in your book. And let me uh, let me explain it briefly. You write that Abraham Joshua Heschel, and you've already explained uh, who he was, uh, one of the leading Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, um, and our listeners may also uh, think of him in connection with uh, marching with Martin Luther King because he used his, um, uh, his knowledge sometimes as um, uh, an entree into activism. Right? He was famous for saying, my legs feel like they're praying when he marched with Martin Luther King. So that was who Heschel was. And he wrote, you share in, your, in the anthology, that in a period when, quote, the mere fulfillment of regulations close quote, was seen as the most essential to living as Jew, quote, along came the best and taught that Jewish life is an, is an occasion for exaltation. Observance of the law is the basis, but exaltation through observance is the goal. I, I love that. Um, and, and you say uh, also that uh, ritual practice and study of text seems, or uh, this is my thought, that they... Um, they seem almost like the opposites of exaltation. Yet you observe that one becomes aware of God's presence in all things through absorption in the Torah and observance of the commandments and their deeper meaning. Meaning, how does this happen? Well, you, yes, a number of questions at once. Let me, let me start with a comment about Heschel. And that is that Heschel uh, was very opposed to what he understood as religious behaviorism. Meaning that, you know, being faithful to uh, the Torah and to Jewish life meant that you simply kept the mitzvot. And it didn't matter what you thought about it. It didn't matter what spirit in which you did it. You did it, Mm -hmm. right? You kept the Sabbath, went to the synagogue, you said the prayers, and and that was enough, right? Heschel himself grew up in the Hasidic community in Warsaw, uh, he was born in 1907, and uh, he grew up in a very deeply Hasidic family. His his uh, father uh, had been a Rebbe. He was descended from one of the great Rebbe's, one of the great Hasidic masters of uh, Avraham Yehoshua Heschel, his namesake, the, uh, uh, who was known as the Ohev Yisrael, uh, lover of all Jews. Right? Yeah, which is quite a great compliment to yes. give to someone who had to live with uh, a Jewish congregation of many, you know, probably thousands of followers all his life. Um, and to be, you know, known as someone who loved them all. Uh, that was great. So that was a great legacy that Heschel himself had. Um, and at a certain point in his late teens, he walked away from Hasidic life and eventually made his way to Western Europe, and then uh, before the war uh, came to America. But he never left Hasidism behind completely. Uh, He had experienced the exaltation of Jewish life, the sense that it wasn't just what you did, but it was what you sought to create and how you sought to... uh, build a soul, to build a certain kind of person who served God in a certain way, it was much more than just simply doing the prescribed actions. The prescribed actions mm-hmm. were a prescription for uh, the fulfillment of the purposes of God. And that's what uh, Heschel thrived on. That's what Heschel uh, so, uh, Judaism, with some degree of exaltation, uh, or what some of the mystics might even describe as ecstasy, right? when one has that kind of feeling, 
when one has that kind of experience that that cannot really be described in words, and Heschel very often referred to those kinds of experiences as ineffable, meaning mm-hmm. that which cannot be put into words. Mm-hmm. Uh, one doesn't easily lose the sense of uh, grandeur that that one uh, finds in those moments. Mm-hmm. They may be relatively few in one lifetime, mm-hmm. but they last. Mm-hmm. And people who are Hasids are aware of that as perhaps a, a goal or an option, or how would you describe it? Well, Hasidism that? has classically taught that that, you know, that one has to strive for that. Um, uh, one of the key goals in Hasidic thought is what is referred to as devekut, meaning cleaving to God. What does it mean to cleave to God? It means that whatever one is doing, and everybody has to do all the ordinary things of life, uh, but you still have God in mind first mm-hmm. and foremost. Uh, Yitzhak Buxbaum, who's uh, a contemporary Jewish thinker, uh, has a, uh, a wonderful way of putting this. And I mentioned this in the book. He says it's, it's like driving a car. When you drive a car, you can be doing all sorts of things. If you're sitting next to me in the car, we could be having a conversation. Um, if I'm thirsty, so I reach over to the cup that's uh, next to the driver's seat, and I take a sip of my uh, coffee or my cup. Um, I use my feet to control the speed of the car. I could be doing all sorts of things. I adjust the volume on the radio. But the number one thing is my eye is on the road ahead. That's where the best part of my attention is directed. And for the mystic, if you want to live in Devekut, and the development of this is really a spiritual discipline, which I think takes a very long time to uh, kind of create within any individual, uh, because you know we all have an ego and we all tend to be focused on ourselves and and on all the day-to-day things that demand our attention. Um, but devekut is the goal through which you devote the best part of your attention to God. Mm-hmm. To, you know, what is God? What does God want from me? How, do, how does God want me to respond to this and that situation? And that's the mystical un- union? That's- well, Devekut can lead to mystical union. In some um, schools of mysticism, it's, it actually can lead to a state of, well, in Latin, unio mystica. Right? But it doesn't have to be. Um, it, it may be simply that one has God in mind without necessarily uh, attaining a state of union with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's uh, almost hard to move beyond uh, this discussion because it's uh, such a very special um, observation that you're sharing. Well, and, and, and one other aspect of that that I think is important to include is that uh, another one of the basic Hasidic teachings is that there is no place uh, which is absent uh, of God. And that God exists within everything, within all of us. Uh, it's not the same as pantheism, you know, the idea that God is everything, but there is no place that is devoid of God. Mm-hmm. It's like panentheism. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when I understand that I am part of God, that I am not truly separate from God, that is uh, uh, a great step forward for the mystic. Mm-hmm. 
when I understand that, I'm, that I am part of something broader and that my own individual identity isn't nearly as important as I think it is, that's a great step forward. So the image that I frequently like to use with this is that of uh, the ocean and the waves, right? Which I first learned, and I quoted from uh, uh, Rabbi Richard Rubenstein's book. Uh, God is the ocean, and we are the waves. Right? We like to think that we have a, an independent existence. And we look like we have an independent existence. But in reality, we are just part of the ocean. And we go back into the ocean. Whereas it's, you know, not water, it's dust, right? From dust to dust. So, uh, we come out of the ocean for a while. We have our appearance. We have our uh, seemingly independent existence. And then we go back. It's quite an image to hold. And it's the kind of thing that one can hold on to, in, yes. right? Um, the other image, uh, and it's, it's really a word image, that I think uh, uh, you taught me in the book, uh, was that it gives new meaning to the Shema, the traditional recitation of, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, which traditionally you say three times a day. Right, so for the non-mystic, God is one, it simply means that there is only one God and no other. Mm-hmm. For the mystic, it is, you know, the notion of oneness with God. And given the, um, the likelihood of saying, uh, saying that, it's, it's, it uh, keeps in front of your eyes a very new um, approach after reading your book to understanding the oneness of God. Um, now, I, I was surprised by your observations that in some ways the Hasidic master became a forerunner of the modern congregational rabbi. (laughs) Where did that come from? Well, uh, typically many rabbis prior to the development of Hasidism, well, they, they, you know, they endured community politics and the like, but they, they weren't, they didn't necessarily have the feeling of being responsible to the entire congregation. The Hasidic rabbi, uh, not because they were hired by the congregation, but because they took responsibility for the congregation. Um, they were uh, followed by hundreds and sometimes thousands of individual Jews who depended upon them, the, the rabbis, the Hasidic masters, for guidance both spiritual and material. And so, they in some ways set the tone for uh, rabbis who uh, uh, work today uh, under much different conditions, of course, but with similar uh, responsibilities. Rabbis are often called upon to be wise men, um, and, 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 you know, for much more than just spiritual guidance. So we have to be prepared for that sometimes. We have to know our limits, but we also uh, have to understand what people uh, want and need from us. Uh, there's also a certain you know, degree of burnout uh, as I mentioned, there was one particular Hasidic Rebbe who uh, burned out far too early in his life. Uh, and we know that uh, you know, the clergy uh, are all susceptible mm-hmm. to burnout. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm a lawyer in this, also an occupational hazard. Uh, but yes, you, the other, The other uh, uh, transformative uh, concept I came away uh, from your book with, was I've heard so many people say, you know, in the days of Moses, Joshua, um, Abraham, God spoke to man, um, and some women too. God, but God was uh, a visual presence um, and somebody with whom people communicated. Um, uh, but that was back then, in the days of the Bible, 
um, and certainly not since. Uh, right. And in fact, many scholars of Jewish mysticism did not include the Bible in their considerations. And I think that in part it may have been to sort of, you know, segregate God from the biblical period where people at least claimed to have had those kinds of experiences from uh, later periods where, you know, we, we had a more sophisticated understanding of God, right? or at least claimed to. But uh, uh, at least the approach that I've taken in my book is that uh, the mysticism uh, of later eras is simply built on the mystical experiences that are described in the Bible. That's beautiful. So we really have that same potential, perhaps, perhaps. to have God in our lives in a very personal manner. Um, let me ask you uh, one more question before we close, because I've taken a lot of your time. But as I recall, I, I don't uh, re- remember any Jewish any uh, uh, woman uh, among the mystics, among the Jewish mystics. Did I overlook someone? No, you didn't. No. And, and, well, you know, there may have been uh, women who were mystics uh, in you know, previous eras, but the reason why you don't see much about women here is, is very simple, in that all of Jewish leadership was male-centered. And so... You know, to be a leader, to be a Hasidic Rebbe, to be uh, uh, one of the, uh, let's say, the mystics of Tzfat in the 16th century, mm-hmm. um, to be one of the writers of the Zohar, which is the granddaddy book of Jewish mysticism in the 13th century, uh, it was understood that all the leaders were male. It was... Uh, you know, it was it was not a an environment that was friendly to female leaders. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't know that there were women who had some appreciation for mystical experience. So, for instance, um, in, in Sfat, you know, the uh, and in other eras as well, the man. It may be, at least in public and on paper, the one who is the mystic. But there are certain rituals where the woman's participation is required as well. And and so it it would seem that, unless you're going to go back to religious behaviorism, uh, where she just does it without having any understanding whatsoever of, of the meaning of it, she would... Uh, actually have uh, some knowledge of the role that she is playing, not just down here on Earth, but in the cosmos, in the, in the Kabbalistic framework. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, um, uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, who has written some very interesting books uh, uh, on mysticism, wrote a novel called Kabbalah, A Love Story, which suggests that the author of the Zohar was actually a woman. Oh, my right? goodness. But, of course, yeah. if that were true, it couldn't be made public. It, well, that, right. would, that would cause all sorts of problems. And so, you know, she sort of fronted her writings through mm-hmm. uh, someone who could, you know, get away with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, passing them on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fanciful, uh, but... It illustrates the problem uh, with looking for women as mystics because um, it, it just it wasn't an environment that was friendly for them. Mm-hmm. At least not public. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Thank you. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, and we're very grateful to you for sharing uh, uh, all of these thoughts in connection with uh, your book and your um, your long experience on this subject. Uh, it's traditional in new books uh, programs to end by asking you about what you're working on, but I'd like to ask a little different question. Um, what is your hope for the book? My hope is that it will open doors for people who are interested in uh, what Jewish mysticism has to say, what kind of impact it might have on their lives. 
I hope it'll be something that uh, rabbis and other teachers can use uh, as a, as a not exactly a textbook, but in some ways a text that presents the texts of the mystical tradition as uh, as a beginning for discussion and consideration of you know, what kind of impact this can have on people's lives and what we want for the Jewish community in the future. That's great. Thank you very much. Well, with that, thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in to this edition of New Books in Jewish Studies. Uh, we spoke about a Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism reader uh, by Rabbi Dr. Daniel M. Horwitz, just published by Jewish Publication Society and the University of Nebraska Press. Please go out and buy your copy on Amazon or at the Jewish Publication Society website or at your local bookseller. And please tune in for another edition of New Books in Jewish Studies soon. Thanks for your attention.